Gospel of John, chapter 20, from verse 24 to verse 31. John, chapter 20. Beginning at verse 24, the word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thus far God's word. Let's sing together in response hymn 55, stanzas 1 through 3. The text this afternoon is the Word of God as we summarize and confess it in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 7. Are all men then saved by Christ, just as they perished through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And then follows a question and answer with the articles as we will confess them in song after the service. Thus far, then, our confession of faith. Beloved in Christ our Lord, if we look around us, in the world we live, the culture around us, we can notice two contradictory trends that attack our confession this afternoon. The confession that true faith is a sure knowledge and a firm confidence. The first of these is a restriction on what exactly constitutes knowledge. 
What is knowledge? Pride in human reason, the ability to think, and confidence in the scientific method has led our society to limit what knowledge is. The only things we know, we know, the only things that can be called knowledge, they say, are those things we can prove or demonstrate by way of a system of rules developed by scientists, by historians, and by other academics. If you can't see it with your eyes, if you can't touch it with your hands, if you can't smell it or taste it, well, then it's not there. Or at least you can't know anything really about it. That's a leftover of what we call modernism. The belief that the only things we can really know are those things that we can prove. We could call it the Thomas Principle. Thomas would only believe what he could touch. The Thomas Principle leaves no room for important questions like what's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? Or even, is there a God? At the same time, the society we live in prides tolerance. And they pride the happy coexistence of many different worldviews and different viewpoints. We call that postmodernism. That means that no one, no one person's beliefs and opinions should be held up and above the opinions of someone else. If something seems good to you, no one else has the right to tell you that you're wrong. If you think it's true, well, then it's true for you. In some ways, that's the opposite of the first problem. It's not a restriction of knowledge, but it's an opening up of knowledge to everything. Everything becomes true. But if everything is true, then nothing is true. And so this tolerance ends up with the same result when it comes to the important questions in life. There simply is no firm answer. But neither of these two trends, postmodernism or modernism, fit with what Scripture reveals to us or fit with what we confess regarding Scripture this afternoon. And both of these attack directly the faith that we confess in Lord's Day 7. Because modernism says we can't know anything by faith, and postmodernism says that you can have faith in pretty much anything, and it will be meaningful for you, but not necessarily anybody else. But we confess this afternoon that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see, as we read in Hebrews 11, verse 1. We can know what we can't feel, touch, taste, or smell. And we also confess Jesus Christ as the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. There is only one way, there's only one truth, and one life that provides meaning in this world we live in. It's a confession that's a matter of life and death because it has everything to do with our perfect mediator and deliverer who can free us from God's wrath against sin. And so our confession this afternoon can be summarized under this theme. Only true faith binds us to this mediator, Jesus Christ. And we'll see four things about this faith that is necessary, the necessity of this faith, We'll look at the contents of this faith, the character of this faith, and the source of this faith. In the previous Lord's Day, we come face to face with this perfect mediator. The perfect mediator between sinful man and holy God. You can see there that he was the perfect sacrifice for sin. The perfect offering of obedience 
because he fulfilled all the requirements to satisfy God's wrath. But also because he was God in the flesh, his sacrifice had infinite value. It was of such value that it could cover any number of sins, could redeem any number of people. But that left the lingering question, did it? Did Christ's sacrifice, which was of infinite value, cover the sins of everyone? Did his death and resurrection secure salvation for all? Is the number of those who died in Adam the same as the number of those who find life in Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is clear and definite. The Catechism says no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept his benefits. To put it in Jesus' words, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's only Son, John 3, verse 18. Now that's a hard truth. Many have tried to worm their way out from under it, especially in today's postmodern society saying that God is love. And if God is love, his love must win. His mercy has to triumph over justice, that all will be saved. It's an attractive thought, isn't it? But it makes a mockery of what God has revealed in his word. It makes a mockery, too, of what Jesus has done and what he has said to us. It may sound wonderful and loving, But those who make this claim about God's justice and mercy, they actually insult a holy and almighty God. Because they imagine that they themselves could love this world more than God himself. They pretend that their own plans could be more merciful and more loving than an all-powerful and all-loving and holy God. To them, We can only say in absolute humility, like the Apostle Paul, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Romans 9, verse 21. This is the way our gracious God has designed it to be. This is the way he has revealed it as well in his only Son, Jesus Christ. Only those are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ. That means then that in this world in which we live, there's a fundamental, a basic antithesis. There's a rupture. There's a fault line between those who believe and those who do not believe. Christ is for the people in this world, for you and for I, one of two things. Either he is the rock of salvation, the cornerstone, or he's a stumbling block. You're either for Christ or against Christ. You're either destined for eternal life or to eternal damnation. There's no in-between. And when Christ returns, this fault line will become a forever unbridgeable chasm. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Matthew 24, 40-41. We may never treat this sharp divide, carelessly. Nor should we accept it casually. God himself desires, he tells us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, 
that all people be saved. And so should we. If you can think about the eternal punishment of your neighbor or your colleague or your friend without feeling pain, then you need to reflect more deeply on the cost of your own salvation and the depth of God's mercy and grace towards you. And so the sharpness of the catechism's answer calls also for our own hearts to be stirred with the same compassion and love for the lost. It calls for us to hold out to those around us this exclusive mediator, to ask them this most important question, who do you say Jesus is? Because the answer to that question is a matter of life and death. Those who answer with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, are like branches that become grafted into Christ, that flow with his life-giving spirit and bear fruit. But those who respond in any other way to this question are like branches that will be cut off and thrown into the fire. This confession then, that Jesus is the Christ, that's ultimately the contents of our faith. The Catechism speaks of true faith being a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. In question and answer 22, it says that a Christian must believe all that is promised in the gospel. That means that our faith has a specific object, specific contents. We don't just need to have faith. We need to believe in something. And that something is revealed in God's word. But more importantly, and above all, we need to believe in someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ. All scripture is pointing to Jesus Christ. We read him on every page of the Bible. He's the fulfillment of all that God revealed in the Old Testament. He's the climax, the center point of human history. All of scripture is the gospel. And the gospel is simply put this. Jesus Christ died for sinners who have faith in him. And so the contents of our faith, the sure knowledge of faith is that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the perfect mediator. It's an acceptance of this gospel reality as truth. Now that doesn't mean that everything else is unimportant, that it doesn't matter if we believe in the historical existence of Adam or that the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt really happened, or that there was a king named David. These things are important, of course, because God reveals them in his word. But all these things find their meaning in Jesus Christ. In Christ, all the promises of Scripture are made true and certain. And in Christ, God revealed himself most perfectly and completely to his people. And so faith is above all knowing Jesus as the Christ. Christ is the contents of our faith. And that's more than just knowledge of Christ. Faith is not just an affirmation that yes, there was a Jesus and that he was a historical figure or even that he was the son of God. Faith is knowing Jesus as the Christ, of accepting him as the Christ. There might be many who are convinced that there's a God, even that he's a loving and a gracious God. They might be convinced that there was someone named Jesus even that he was a great moral teacher. But unless you know yourself as a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace, and unless you accept Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, you simply don't have 
faith. Unless you can accept that in Adam you are dead in sin, and only in Christ are you made alive, you don't have faith. And unless you're grafted to Christ by true faith, you can't receive his benefits. But those who do, those who do accept this Christ in faith have a rock-solid foundation. They have a sure knowledge that Scripture is God's revelation and that God does not lie when he makes his promises. Now, the world is going to tell you that this is nonsense. We can't know things that we can't see or prove to exist. But in fact, there are things that we know that the world simply can't believe. Their advanced methods of science tell them we can't, if we can't observe creation from nothing, well, then it simply didn't happen. And as for the resurrection from the dead, well, that's just foolish. That's the standpoint of the world. But when we accept Christ, when we accept as true all that God reveals in Scripture and through his Son, Jesus Christ, there's this wonderful new perspective on the world. And then we don't need to put our fingers into Jesus' side. We don't need to touch the nail marks in Jesus' hands because our eyes are opened wide. The blinders are taken off. When we know Christ, our ears are open to hear the song of creation, singing her master's praise in the warbling of the the birds. We see his hand in the majesty of the mountains, the beauty of a sunset, and the wonder of new life. When we know Christ, we know all the answers. We find the answers to life's big questions. We find comfort for our suffering and pain. We find purpose for our lives. We find forgiveness for our sins. We find hope for the future. All these things we know when we know Christ. That's true faith. It's a sure knowledge of the most incredible good news, the most powerful gospel. But it's even more than that. As the Catechism points out, it's not just a sure knowledge, it's also a firm confidence. That's the character of this faith. Tied up closely to this sure knowledge of Christ, of the mediator and what he has done, is the powerful reality that Christ is not just the mediator, but he's my mediator. As Thomas said, my God and my Lord. True faith grabs onto Christ and says, you are my Savior, and because you are my Savior, I have eternal life. It's as certain as that. We read it together in John 20. By believing, you may have life in his name. Those who believe do receive forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. In this way, our sure knowledge of who Christ is gives our faith a confident character. Now, that's not to say that we trust in our own faith or in our own belief. We don't find confidence in looking inwardly into ourselves. If that were true, then we could hardly claim to have a firm confidence Who among us has not struggled at one time or another with doubt? Who among us has not walked through dark valleys in the course of our lives? No. We don't have confidence in ourselves. We don't spend time navel-gazing, wondering whether or not 
We're succeeding in our walk of faith. We don't have faith in our faith. Rather, through faith, we fix our eyes again on Christ. And because we know him, we also trust that he will hold on to us. Think of the child whose father throws him into the air. Do you think the child doubts, even for a second, that his father will catch him again? Of course he doesn't. Because he knows his father. He knows who his father is because he's seen what his father does. He loves him. Of course he'll catch him. Just so, when you know Christ, when you know who Christ is, when you know him as your mediator, when you know him as the perfect God-man who freely gave himself to pay our debt, then you will also trust that he is your mediator and your deliverer. Then you'll have confidence that he lived, he suffered, he died, he rose again for you personally, and that he will never abandon those who fix their eyes on him. That's a childlike trust. And it's a childlike confidence. And then the question is never, is my faith strong enough? Or do, do I have enough faith? But rather, do I see Christ? Do I know Christ from his word? Do I see my Savior hanging on that cross for me? Do I see him now seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory? Is he strong enough for me? And then we answer with a resounding yes. He is strong enough. Our confidence rests in his power. For it's his power that is also the source of our faith. You see that in the final point. He gives us his spirit into our hearts, who we confess works this faith in our hearts by the gospel. What a comfort that is. This faith that binds us to Christ, it's not even our own doing. This sure knowledge, this firm confidence that allows us to accept all these precious benefits from our Savior Jesus Christ, it doesn't have our own, its origins in our own decisions, in our own efforts. If that were the case, we would be hopelessly lost and we would find little comfort in times of doubt. No, we are not responsible for one ounce of our faith in Christ. This too is a gift from God. God pouring out grace upon grace not only provides us with this perfect mediator, but also works in our hearts this response of faith that we may grasp the promises of God. He's done it all. As the Apostle Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourselves, is the gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8. Now that does not mean, though, that when we go through difficult periods, when our confidence in the promises of God are shaken, when our faith is weak, that we treat it fatalistically, that we say, well, the Spirit's got to do his work, and if he doesn't, well, then what can I do? But rather, when we doubt, when we struggle with the frailty of our faith, then we cling to the reality that it is God himself who's at work in us, and that he promises, Almighty God promises his spirit to those who genuinely ask him. Then we can take comfort, too, that the spirit uses means 
to work faith in our hearts. He doesn't do it magically. He doesn't instill this faith in some kind of magical way apart from means, although he certainly could. Instead, he has promised to do it through the gospel. That is, when the gospel is preached, or when the good news is symbolized and sealed in the sacraments, when we read God's word in our personal or family devotions, whenever we open the word, the spirit is there working in our hearts. That's how the spirit works faith. And that means then that we have the solution for periods of doubt or struggles in our faith. Is your faith weak? Do you doubt? Use the means. Attend the worship services. Sit under the preaching. Use the sacraments. Read the scriptures. Marinate your life in prayer. Allow God to work in your heart through the Spirit by sitting under the promises of the gospel. And pray continually that the Spirit may strengthen your faith and put away your doubts. And then God in his mercy will enter your heart again and restore you. He will fix your eyes again on your mediator, Jesus Christ. In him, you can have every confidence. In him, you can find life, true life. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Then look out at the world around you with eyes of faith. See in the world around you the hand of your almighty God, the creator of everything, upholding everything still in the palm of his hand, preserving and upholding even us in our daily existence. And look up too. Look up to heaven And see there, beyond the clouds, your perfect mediator and deliverer, seated on the throne, interceding for you at God's right hand. My Lord and my God. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 73, stanzas 8 and 9.